Ron Stallsworth was a, uh, an African-American man who grew up in Chicago and then moved to Colorado Springs to become a police officer. And uh, he has the singular distinction of being the only black member and first black member of the KKK. So if that sounds a little weird to you, it should. Um, so he does this uh, as an undercover operation. He infiltrated the ranks. His certificate is signed by none other than David Duke. And he has this distinction, and it's a contradiction of the substance itself, right? Why, why would uh, this guy, who clearly does not uh, abide by whatever the stated purpose of the KKK is, be a member of that organization? Well, he's not doing it because he agrees with it. But yet, this idea is something that is just, um, it's, it's common in our day, that somebody would do something or say something uh, or proclaim to be a part of something that all evidence uh, is, is uh, contradictory to that, to that conclusion. Are you tracking with that? Like somebody would say, hey, I, I don't care what the biological reality is, uh, or I, I am a, a boy, or I am a girl, even if you are not that thing, right? And this kind of distinction uh, is, is largely affirmed because people don't seem to know what to do with that. Now, whether or not you have an issue with that or you feel like that's hard to figure out, I would say what's much more detrimental to the church is not people out there proclaiming things that are weird or hard. It's people that proclaim to be, to proclaim to be Christians, but then gather and do something other than what the Word of God says. Or they don't gather around the Word of God at all. And that's a weird phenomenon. I think that's the kind of phenomenon that, that like, like a black guy joining the KKK. I think it's that kind of problem, that kind of distinction. Because if Christians are anything, they are first and foremost a people of God's word. And yet today around the nation, it's not a distinctly Western and American problem, but people will gather around all kinds of things, calling it Christian, calling it church, but not doing it around the word of God. Maybe the word of God is alluded to, Maybe it's something they agree with as important, but there's parts of it they're like, yeah, we don't really agree with that part of it. We don't really think that that's true. And so whether or not that's proclaimed from the pulpit or said as uh, what they do in practice, the reality still remains that it's a contradiction of the substance itself. Because like I say, if, if you're anything as a Christian, you are a people of God's word. Now, with um, that being said, I want you to read this scripture. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to read this with me this morning because it sort of governs then our ideas about um, what it is that we can do as those who are called God's people and who would be people that are supposedly governed by God's word. Okay? So here's what it says with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, that word there, uh, breathed out by God, is literally, it's a one compound word that's theonoustos. It is, it is breathed out in the Spirit of God, by God's Spirit, for the purposes of helping us navigate our way through life, to navigate our way of trusting God in this world. He's given us his word for that very purpose, that you will be perfect or complete in doing so. Now, how many guys drive a vehicle that uh, is older than five years old? Yeah? Okay. And uh, how many of you guys have been driving for longer than uh, five years? Okay. All right. Sweet. Now, I would venture a bet 
that there is something in your glove box, all of your glove boxes, that you have never pulled out, which is the owner's manual. All right? Now, now I, I don't want to make a direct correlation because it's going gonna, it's gonna to part ways, as all illustrations do. But the purpose is this. The, the, the owner's manual is there. It's in your glove box. It's got all kinds of information about your car, right? And it says in there what kinds of things that you ought to do to, to use that vehicle in a way that it was designed to be used, right? That makes sense, right? And yet, you've driven it for a while, and you've never really pulled it out. And how many of you guys have, uh, are just religious, I mean, just super precise about changing your oil every 3,000 miles? I mean, just on the button, okay, that's good. Some of you do that. How about, how about changing, rotating your tires, balancing your tires, right? Making sure that's done. How many of you guys make sure that all of your belts are exchanged, your cabin air filter is cleaned as long, and your, and your engine air filter on the precise dates that are given and the mileages that are in your owner's manual? Yeah, Leslie, I know, I know, I know Jimmy is because he's that guy, but okay. Now, here's the thing. Now, regardless of if you're that guy, even if you're that guy or girl, okay, you still, now, even if you were, you were thumbing through it and you had all of that information down pat, like you knew it and you were abiding by it and you were doing everything, are you also somebody that, that could explain how the vehicle works? Other than I put my key in, I turn it, and because I've done the things it says, it generally starts when I want it to, right? And it drives the places I want it to go, and it's fairly reliable, right? That's about as far as we mostly get with that. Now, if you take the, uh, the person that just knows the most about cars, I mean, just as a complete gearhead, and they could, they could uh, strip down an engine, they could put it all back together, never open an owner's manual, know everything to do. You know the one thing that they've never done? They've never actually built a car out of raw materials. So they know, they know how to put things together. They know how it ought to work. There's a concept there, but they've never machined an engine block and created all of the things that are necessary for an internal combustion engine to work. So there's like an extra level to what the Bible has that just like an owner's manual, that's why that one falls short in some ways, right? The owner's manual is not really comparable in some sense to the scripture. And, and, and what's on all of your cars um, that shows something about the authority of the person that wrote the owner's manual. You're not going to guess it. It's on the back and the front of most of your cars. It's the maker's mark, right? It's, it says this was manufactured in this place, and we have the authority and the knowledge to write this manual so that you know exactly how to operate this vehicle in the way that it was intended to do. Now, you live largely in rebellion to that manual, if you don't open it up, you're like, hey, you know what? It says I should use premium, but premium's expensive. So I just put whatever, whatever's the cheapest in there, and it's been fine, right? And it does work for a while. So listen, you can live in rebellion to God's word, just like you can live in rebellion to the owner's manual. And life still works for you. Like you could get through life without the Bible, but you cannot be complete as God intended you to be. That's what scripture is meant to do. It, 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 it equips you to do everything that God says is necessary in life. And without it, you cannot do those things. Are you with me? Okay. Now, this morning, we're in Acts 17. We're going um, verse 1 through 15, talking about upside down, the power of the word over the world. So if you uh, are with me, we'll pray this morning. We'll ask God to help us in our time in his word and see what he would want to say. Father, we ask... Um, Humbly this morning that you would teach us 
Teach us um, uh, your, your word to trust in what you said um, and, and not just to, to have more knowledge, God, but to, to stand firm in declaring what the gospel means and how you are the, the king over all things. And just I ask this morning that you would help us to understand what you would say, that you would open our minds and our, our, our ears and our eyes to behold um, Jesus, who is the central purpose in all things. God, would you just speak the gospel clearly this morning? May it not be my words, but yours. Fill us with your hope and your spirit this morning so that we can understand and keep these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said. It's, uh, it's fairly popular in other places and in some churches to say something like, we don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus. And in in truth, that's, that's an absolutely true statement, but what it betrays is the thing below that, which is there's parts of the Bible either I don't agree with or I'm embarrassed with, right? Like, I, I, don't, I, I hold out the Bible as this thing that I don't worship, and yet the Bible is the central thing that governs everything else. So we don't come here and we don't reverence a book. That's true. Like, we don't worship the Bible. But listen, the Bible is the only means that God has given us to know Him, okay? Now, um, I want you to see uh, this morning that the Bible is the only, there's an asterisk there, and I'll explain that, the only means which God has ordained to reveal himself. That means he's, he's, um, he's given information in there as a revelation of who he is, so he's available through that, okay? Now, direct interaction with Scripture is effective. That is the way that it actually happens for you, and it's necessary to know God. That is to say that we don't divine truths about God from the ether, it's not inherited from our parents. We don't get it through osmosis, right? It has to be some sort of direct interaction with God's word. And God's word is scripture. I'm trying to get you to, to, to make these things parallel, okay? So um, he is accessible through the, those things without mediatory layers. The whole purpose or, or, or the real driving force of the Reformation was about the access to God's word Individually, if we are truly a priesthood of all believers and Jesus is our high priest, then we should all be able to sort of access God directly through his word without you coming to me and saying, what does God say? And that's the, that, that was sort of the main objection that the church sort of put itself as this intermediary layer between hu human beings and God himself. And if you go directly to scripture, that layer doesn't exist. He is accessible directly to you by you, but it must be your interaction with God's word that does that, okay? Now, we just read that, that um, all scripture is breathed out by God, and I have an asterisk there. And you would say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Is it really the only means? Well, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one who governs the inscripturation, that means the recording and the preservation of God's word, okay? So the Holy Spirit is definitely involved. And we're also told it's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and helps us and guides us into truth so that we can understand it. So he's definitely there, but he's not the, you, you are not the, uh, the governor of the Holy Spirit. He interacts, he comes and he helps us. He uh, um, breathed out the words for others. In Second um, Peter, as he's talking about um, prophecies and, and scripture, Peter says this, that we have the prophetic word fully confirmed. That's Christ himself. The prophetic word fully confirmed in, in bodily form, to which you would do well to pay attention. So he's pointing you to Jesus as like a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning rises in your hearts. 
And then verse 20 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's why I still say that Scripture is the only means that God has given us to, to know him. And when I say means, it means the method or way or tool, okay? It's the only thing, the only tangible thing that we have to know God. So the primary threat then, I think, to the church in general is the attack on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. The authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, okay? So the authority just means that whatever it is that God's Word says, it reigns supreme over whatever else. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what the government says, right? The authority is God's word at the top, okay? And it's sufficient, meaning we don't have to add other things to it to understand what we ought to do. It's sufficient in all that it's intended to do. It doesn't talk about everything exhaustively, but in everything it talks about, it is sufficient, what? So that you will be complete for every good work. And you'll be a complete person in God. So, the exhortation is always then to preach the word. There's nothing else I can add. There's nothing else I can give you. There's no philosophy out there. There's no scientific discovery. There's nothing that will add to scripture so that it will then be sufficient for all that it's intended to do. But this is attacked and sort of like piecemealed away and, and we kind of give away parts of it and it only takes one small attack on this and the whole thing goes. It's, it's one aspect of it that goes away. It either stands as a whole or it falls as a whole. You can't pick and choose because once you start to pick and choose which parts of the Bible that are true or the parts that are accurate or the parts that are sufficient and then say, um, well, these other places aren't, well, you have to then apply that same standard to all of it. And you really can't stand firm on any of it then, right? If parts of it can be dismissed, then all of it can be dismissed. And so that's sort of the slippery slope argument, but it's rampant and it happens all over. And so it's just like this. You look at the world and you see that gas is expensive and your car really calls for premium gas, but it's expensive. And you say, well, I'm just going to put in regular. And, and I, we're like, I think the only one of only two states that have 85 level gas. I think 87 is the minimum everywhere else. But anyway, so you're less like the cheapest stuff, I'll put it in there and it's fine. It's run fine. But eventually it degrades your engine and it's destined to run it down into destruction. Right? Okay. So I want you to see this morning about the centrality of God's word, not just for us, but even in the New Testament, before the New Testament even existed as a document that was passed around, all that exists right now is one letter from the church in Jerusalem. And it says this, look, you don't have to be circumcised to become a, a, a part of the covenant. You just have to abstain from these certain things and have faith in Christ. And this is what... Uh, Paul is traveling around with, with Silas, and they picked up Timothy, so on and so forth. So look with me in uh, Acts 17 and verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul's first stop, if there is a synagogue, is always to go to the synagogue. And he does this for a specific purpose. He does it because they're all starting from the same framework. They all start from the same starting point. It's, we understand the Old Testament. We, we got the scriptures. And so he reasons from those scriptures to make his case about who Christ is. There's two people, there's two kinds of people that are being encountered in the world ever. But it's specifically in Acts, right? There's two kinds of people. There's either people that are familiar 
with the scriptures. Those will be the Jews themselves, maybe uh, converts or proselytes. There's other people that are called God-fearers, those people that know that there's a, a singular God that's above all other gods, but maybe they don't recognize or worship him alone. Okay, those are God-fearers. We've, been, uh, we've seen a few of those throughout. And then there's people that are maybe uh, apostatized Jews. They're, they're familiar with the scriptures, or they've encountered uh, the Jewish people, and they just have rejected it outright, but they still have familiarity with what the, the, the claims of scripture are. And then you have everybody else. And pagan here doesn't mean as bad as they could be. It just means pagan as in they're not have, they don't have any knowledge of, um, of the scripture at all. And those are the two kinds of people that interact with the gospel and they interact with the claims of the gospel. And so Paul always relies on the scriptures when he can. Why? Because they are recognized as God's word. So if, the, if, the, um, if a big supposition is already there, meaning God's word is recorded in, in the, the scriptures, which is the Old Testament at this point, and whatever God's word says is authoritative, then all Paul has to do is connect some dots so that they can see who Jesus is, and now you're confronted with this problem. If God's word says that this is who the Messiah is, and Jesus is that Messiah, I have to interact with that truth. And so that's all Paul is doing. He goes into the synagogue, he reasons, it says, from the scriptures. The word there is dialogue. He dialogued with them from the scriptures. And so he, he wants them to see that everything that was that was already accepted, that they already practice, that they already celebrate, is come to its fullness in Christ. In John uh, chapter 5, records Jesus um, sort of rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees of that day because he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. You think that in the scriptures themselves that you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus says, you're searching them and they're they're bearing witness to me. Here I am, I'm here, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Okay? So th those who don't agree with Paul's um, proclamations of uh, that, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament uh, uh, purposes and uh, prophecies and all of those things, they either see this as blasphemy or, or some great... Uh, like divergence or creating a sect of Judaism, right? But there's no like middle ground. It's either, it's either absolutely true or it's total blasphemy, which is really the main charge that is all consistently brought against Jesus because he makes himself equal to God. Because he was. He was God. So this is the problem that is um, being presented in the mind of a Jew, but it's, it's not only going to confront them, but it gives the, the, the quickest way forward for the gospel. So it says that he, he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths from the scripture. And what did he do? He says, he explained and proving that it was necessary for the, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many uh, devout uh, Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Those devout Greeks there are people that had awareness of um, God. They weren't Jews by heritage, but they had converted. They were proselytes, and so they also uh, agreed with this gospel and some other uh, leading women of the, of the territory. Now, Paul's assertion is from the scripture. I underlined um, how, how did they become persuaded? What, what caused them to agree? They were persuaded by what? Well, the, the first two words there says, he explained, which literally means he, um, he opened up and laid before them. So that, that word, he's explained and proved. And, and when, um, whenever Jesus would tell a parable, it says he set before them a parable. 
this is the same word. He set before them the scripture, and from that, he said, look, here's what it says. Here's who Jesus is. I want you to compare those two things and see how they connect, okay? And his, his main line of argument is that it was necessary that Christ would suffer and be raised, and that's Jesus, okay? So he's connecting three dots. It was necessary not just that the Messiah would come, but that he had to suffer and then rise from the dead, and that Messiah is Jesus, okay? So that's uh, the totality of the line of argumentation. There's no surprise for any Jew that, um, that there was a Messiah, right? That was the, the expectation from, from the get-go. The whole thing is waiting, anticipating the time when a Messiah would come and reign. And there had been lots of people who had come before that, and it said they were the Messiah. There was, uh, just read any of the Apocrypha, and it gives you the history of the Jews and how this was not a, uh, this isn't a new thing that Jesus would come and be declared as the Messiah. It happened before, and Jesus said it will happen again after him. Other people will come and say, proclaiming to be false Christs. Messiah is, is just the, the, the term for Christ, which just means the anointed one, the chosen one of God. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus Messiah or Jesus the anointed one, the chosen one of God. He, he bears a, a certain position by God's choosing him and putting him in that role. And so there's no surprise then that they would declare a Messiah, but the main objection of any Jew and the main objection really of anybody um, altogether is going to be around this. How can the Messiah, how can, be the, how can it be that the chosen one of God could die? That's a, that's a, that's a big hurdle, first of all, to get over. And the, and the second one is this, why must the Messiah die? Because that's Paul's assertion. He says it, was, it wasn't just something that happened, it was necessary. So he, he puts it as a requisite to actually be qualified as the Messiah. He says it was necessary for the Messiah to die. And he says this, this is actually crucial to the purpose of the Messiah. It was not just that he would come and be somebody that, that reigned and, and fixed things. That was expected. But Paul says it was the fact that the Messiah came and that his death meant something for the people that he reigns over that makes him qualified as the Messiah. Jesus' death matters because of who died. It's not just that someone died. It's that Jesus died. Lots of people were crucified. I mean, Romans persecuted for, for a long time. Uh, whatever whatever didn't, they didn't like, whatever was causing disruption in the peace, there was lots of people that were crucified and died by crucifixion. Many Jews were crucified and died by crucifixion. It is not just the death itself that means something. It's who died in that death. And Paul's argument that it was necessary for the Messiah to go through this and to suffer through this is not a, a recent invention. He's going to root it all the way back into Genesis 3. That after the fall, that um, in the garden, God placed a curse on man. He placed a curse on creation. But then he, he gave a, redeem, a redeeming promise that from the seed of the woman, one would come who would what? Crush the head of the serpent. That's called the first gospel, the proto-euangelion. It's the first declaration that sometime in the future, this was all going to turn on its head. And that's what everybody's waiting for. To, for everything to be turned upside down. What we experience as the corrupt creation of sin, of, of, of difficulty, that's what the hope of the Messiah is. And so the very first declaration of that is Genesis chapter 3, that we're waiting for the seed of the woman to come to turn this thing on its head. Now, I'm going to give you um, a bunch of scriptures, and you can't read those scriptures, but I'm going to fly through those scriptures because I'm going to tie two things together. One is that whatever God has purposed comes to pass. 
and that God has purposed that the Messiah would die as a payment for sin. Therefore, it came to pass. Okay? So that's the purpose of all these scriptures, and I'm just going to sort of fly through them. They're Isaiah heavy because Isaiah has the most to say about the Messiah. And Isaiah 14, 24, and 27 says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so will it be. As I have purposed, so will it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it. Who can annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? I read that during music. Isaiah 37, 26 says, Have you not heard that long ago I ordained it? In the days of old I planned it, and now I have brought it to pass. You're, you're, you're hopefully hearing a recurring theme, that God plans things, says they'll happen, and then they happen, and nobody can say otherwise. Um, he says uh, in Isaiah 43, 13, Even from eternity I am he. There is no one who can rescue from my hand. I act and none can reverse it. In 2 Chronicles 26, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms and all the nations? Power and might are in your hand. No one can stand against you. Now, take those, those ideas about who God is, what he purposes and promises, and that they are determined to come to pass. None can change the plan. None can alter his ability to do so. None can stay it. And then Jesus begins to talk about the predetermined plan of God that was going to be executed while he was uh, on earth. And Luke 22:22 says that indeed the Son of Man will go as it was determined, but woe to the man that betrays him. Jesus talking says that um, the Son of Man will go as it was determined, but woe to the one who betrays him. That's Judas, right? Matthew 16, 21 says, From the time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go, that he must go to Jerusalem, and that he must suffer through many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Matthew 17, 23, it says that they killed him and uh, they will kill him. This is Jesus speaking prophetically. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed that they there is the disciples. In Matthew 20, just a little bit later, he says, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. It is a mystery to Jesus what he's going to do? No. And he's telling the disciples that this is the plan. And the disciples are like, I don't think that's a good plan, right? And what we just learned in Isaiah is that if God has a plan to determine it will happen, it will happen. In one sense, Jesus died because God planned it. But that's not an explanation of purpose, right? It, because it's recorded that it would happen does, is not the same thing as saying why did it happen. And the why that it happened is told in other places. In John 1, 28, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he's coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, what? Who takes away the sins of the world. That's the purpose. That's the why. So it's predetermined. Yeah, it's going to happen because God said it will happen, but it needs to happen because there's a purpose behind it. Why? Because he must take away the sins of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. It was a predetermined plan before anything was laid in the world. So God is the ultimate cause, if you want to look at it that way. He's the one who, who governed what happened. He determined that it would occur, but there's a proximate cause. That means that like on earth, something had to happen for that to be carried out. And all of that happened at the hands of men. He was rejected by his own. He was betrayed 
by Judas. He was unjustly accused. They found false witnesses. He was tried and condemned. He was beaten by guards. He was traded for a murderer. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem until he died between two thieves. All of that was the proximate cause. But that's not the ultimate cause. God was the ultimate cause. In Acts 4.28, Peter declaring um, to the people about this crucifixion says this, that they carried out those, those events, they carried out what your hand and your will had decided beforehand would happen. Can I say that again? It's just so we're all tracking together. Peter, in Acts 4, write it down if you need to, says that everything I just read to you, his betrayals, false trials, beating, persecution, traded for a murder, all of those things happened at the hands of men. But the way that it ought to be looked at is they carried out what your hand, that your is a capital Y, Yahweh, whatever the Lord God had decided beforehand, what happened? God had accounted for it. But more than that, he had purposed it for something. He had ordained it as the means of redemption. It is Christ's death that was necessary. That's what Paul's trying to say. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't an unfortunate side road. It wasn't something that we have to figure out how to fix. It was the plan all along that the Messiah must die. Oh, those are the two I, I wanted you to see before, right? To behold the Lamb of God who eat. Why? That's the purpose, so that he would take away the sins of the world. Jesus had to die because he is um, the sacrifice that is both worthy and effective. The essence of the gospel is substitution. And for a substitution to take place, it had to be something that was worthy because Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't ever take away sin. You had to have something that was a worthy substitute for our sins. Jesus had to die because sin brings death, right? And Jesus' sacrifice then is about being that death for us. Life is the required payment for sin. Jesus Christ is the sufficient worthy payment and the promised seed. He was the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent and redeem us from the power of sin and the one who holds the power of that uh, sin, which is the grave, which is death. And Jesus defeats both of those. So Paul's assertion is this. From the Old Testament, I want you to know that Jesus is the promised seed, that he had to both die and rise from the dead. Jesus wasn't just a sacrifice for sin, meaning like it wasn't only the fact that he sacrificed himself for sins. It's that he didn't stay dead. He's resurrected to new life as a new man, as part of new creation. Jesus is now the eternal king in a better way. The argument, if you follow it, whenever they have the opportunity to argue about who the Messiah is, it always comes back to who's going to sit on the throne of David. And when they start talking about well, who's going to sit on the throne of David, the problem was going, always going to come up was, well, David died and his sons have all died and there's nobody to sit on the throne. And even if somebody was in his line, they would die too. But guess what? If you had somebody that never died, how great is that? He could sit on the throne forever. His kingdom would have no end. That's Jesus. He's the one that reigns eternally because he's been resurrected to new life. Jesus is the final and complete sacrifice. He's the high priest who personally makes intercession for us before God. He's the righteous suffering servant foretold by Isaiah. He's the fulfillment of the law and the embodiment of it. He is God the son who took on human flesh. He is the true and better Adam. He is the anointed crown king who righteously inherits all of the nations. He is the first fruits of new creation. He is the royal ruling lion of Judah and 
the perfect, sufficient, atoning Lamb of God. He's both. And he had to be. That's the point. He didn't just die. He rised to new life so that he can fulfill all that the Messiah was destined to be. In Luke 24, this, this was so important. The same author, Luke, who wrote Acts, right? It was so important that Jesus spent time, his last days, after he's resurrected, before he sends to heaven, he, he has like one thing that he's like tasked with doing, as far as we can tell. And it is to open the minds of the disciples about Jesus in the Old Testament. That God so valued the validation of his word that he spent time, Jesus did, to, to make sure that the disciples could make all the necessary connections that I just read that aren't even probably half of what's true, right? It was so important that they make those connections so that they would see that God's word was fulfilled in Christ. In Luke 24, he says in verse 27, I, um, he said to the, them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's everything. In case you're wondering, that's the whole Old Testament. Everything about um, that must be fulfilled. Then verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He wanted them to see that was his purpose and it was always the purpose. From the get-go, it was always planned. This is the essence of the gospel, that you understand that the substitution makes sense because it's Jesus in your place. Jesus in my place. This is the declaration that Paul is trying to make true and make evident. He opens the scriptures for them. He says, do you see how it says here that this is what the Messiah would do? And that's what Jesus did, right? And here's where he'd be born. And here's how he'd die. And here's how he'd be reviled, right? He's making these connections and then he leaves it to them. What do you think about that? Is he the Messiah? I'm telling you that this is Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you. That's the essence of the whole argument. That's the presentation of the gospel. And here's their response. But the Jews were jealous. Now, some of them were converted, some of the high-standing Greeks and proselytes, right? But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason. That's the first time he's mentioned. We don't really know who he is. Other than that, they were staying with Jason. And so they were seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And then when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. Um, that's not the scripture. Let me get it up for you. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. And they have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Okay, I want you to just take note of a few things. First is, who got the city in an uproar? Now, you, you, if you just read that, you might think, well, it was Paul and Silas, but that's not what happened. It was the Jews who were upset that went and found a rabble. That's not a word we use a lot. It's just like, it's kind of like a freeloader in the marketplace. That's the literal definition. Somebody just hanging out in the town square. They rile these guys up with nothing better to do. And they come and they try to, they're going to drag them out of Jason's house. Now, it's the they there that have really disturbed the city is not the people that brought the gospel. It's the people that are responding to the gospel. Because there's only, there's only one response we can have to this contradiction. It's either, yes, I agree with that, or uh, I, I disagree with it, and I'm going to struggle against it. And that's exactly 
what's happened. And I want you to really make note that there's no mystery in the minds of the Jews about what the gospel implies. What does it entail? It's not just that Jesus came and he was a sacrifice. And so great, it's, I mean, we're good. There's a sacrifice for sin. The implication is that he is a threat. He's a threat to the kingdom. He's a threat to our world. He's a threat to our way of life. And that is a full gospel. The devil is not threatened by a small gospel. A small gospel says Jesus is a sacrifice for sin, but he's not anything more. He's not Lord. He's not king. He's an advisor. We like him as a friend. He can even rise to the level of like governor, right? Good, good counsel giver. But if, he rely, if, he, if he's like up in the level of Jesus is Lord, that's a problem for every worldview that has something else as Lord. Whatever is at the top, and right now at the top in their minds is Caesar. So in their, they, they've not, it's not a mystery to them that Jesus is a threat to Caesar because if Jesus is Lord, he's above Caesar, right? And so the problem with this gospel is that it has taken the power structure with Caesar at the top and it's turned it on, on its head because it says that Jesus is at the top and that's a threat. The problem that, that we have is to rob what the Bible says about the Messiah and declaring him Lord and making him less than. It's robbing God of what he's truly due, of what Jesus really is. And that's not a gospel that turns the world upside down. That's a gospel you can add to your already existing worldview, your already existent world, worldview that has a power structure where you're, you're pretty much the point of everything, right? Where man is uh, the point where we can have uh, a certain level of authority and power and we do whatever we want, right? The thing about Jesus' plan for the world and his declaration of what it was to rule the nations in righteousness for eternity is that he takes what we think of as the, the right side up world and he always flipped it on its head. He said the way up is down, right? Whoever wants to be the greatest must be a servant to all. If you, if you want to have power and be important, then you must be humble and weak. The last are first. Love your enemy. There's life through death. There's victory and surrender. That's all upside down. That doesn't accord at all with the worldview that says man is the point. And there's a king at the top of that. Jesus crushes that all down and he turns it on its head. But he asks still, if I'm Lord, why do you call me Lord but don't do what I say? Why? If, I, if, I'm, if I'm truly king of everything and I have I have the, 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 the making authority, like the maker's mark, right? I, I, I know how it all works. My words have authority and power. If that's true, why do you say that I'm Lord, but you don't live like it? Blessed, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. That's what Jesus had to say. Because Messiah means king. They're inseparable. You can't have a savior without a Lord. You can't have Jesus as a sacrifice that's sufficient without him also being God. Just a one-for-one one isn't great. You die for me, but you're not even righteous. But even if you were, you're not God. Your, 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 your atoning sacrifice wouldn't be worthy for all of sin for the whole world. Jesus implicitly and explicitly lays claim to king of all in the gospel. So that's why the gospel must include this truth. The thing that threatens Rome or any other kingdom is a rival kingdom. 
And so when you come and you say, Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of everything, and he can save you by acknowledging his lordship and you surrender to him, right? You become part of that kingdom. That's a threat to every other world system and world structure. Gospel isn't um, something that you can just add. It has to be a totality. I could rant longer, but I won't. Okay, verse 9. And when they had taken money as security, so they, they want to find them. They can't find them. They want to drag them out and do bad things. For whatever reason, they've either been secured away or hidden, and um, they take a, a, like a security, a bond, if you will, from Jason. It's not a bribe. It says this, get them out of our city and don't bring them back, okay? When they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they taxed everyone. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into what? The Jewish synagogue, right? For the same purpose that we just started with, because they understood the same thing that the people in Thessalonica did, that the, the, the Scriptures declare things about the Messiah, and Paul's going to make these same connections. And it says um, that uh, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see um, if these things were so. That's important. Okay, I'm going to leave that slide up for just a second. The, they, they go to a new town, Berea, and these Jews, upon hearing the same things that were declared in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness. It says they were more, more noble, and that nobility or their, um, how they're regarded by, by Luke is directly attached to their openness to understanding and receiving the Scriptures, what the Scriptures declared, because they had already placed God's Word as the highest authority so that when those connections are made and they verified them, they went, searched daily to make sure these things were so, and when they did, they said, what could we do but surrender to the king? What, what can we do but surrender to the Lord? What, that, that nobility is what we're encouraged to have. The nobility is not, I'm so smart, I understand everything that God's word says. It says, the, the noble thing to do is whatever God's word says, I'm humble underneath it. So that whatever it declares, I will do. And the authority here is not Paul. It's not the pastor. It's not the church. It's not, it's not the documents he's bringing. It's, it's the fact that it is God's words to them. He's not the persuader. He's just the deliverer of the message. And notice that they searched daily, but he, he was sharing in the synagogue weekly, right? Like, here's my plug. You, your, your frequency in the scripture should be more than when it's opened up for you. Why? So that you can search and know that I'm not just making things up. That you conclude for your own self that your direct interaction with Scripture can allow you to know God and not just for you to know things about what I know about God. So search daily in God's Word. And the result of this is that many of them therefore believe. They didn't believe because it was Paul. They didn't believe because they brought the, the letter. There was no other purpose than that they had attached it to the fact that it was God's Word. And not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. For those that will humble themselves before the word of God, Jesus says simply this, ask, seek, knock. You receive. If you are diligent about it and you are noble in the sense that you're humble before the word of God, you're seeking for him to speak to you, he will. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask the Lord and he will give. You don't just say, God, I need wisdom. He's like, great, I wrote a book. There's a manual. Pull it out of your, your glove box. It'll tell you everything you need to know, okay? You can have wisdom, 
And you can access that wisdom, but you have to make the choice to do so, okay? Um, I don't have a ton of time for this. I'm just going to highlight it real quick. In verse 4 and verse 12, it's highlighted the fact that there were not a few women of high standing. If you take nothing else away from that statement, I want you to see that it implodes the argument that Christianity is about subjugation of women or that there's anything about the gospel that is, that is um, not freeing, that these, that these women who had some kind of standing, some kind of respect, some kind of position in society saw the truth that Jesus is Lord as a better thing to come underneath than whatever thing they had before, right? So whatever philosophy or, or doctrine is out there today that says that, that um, you know, Christianity is the patriarchy and it's keeping women down, that's not, it's not true, these, these women had position, and they are willingly coming to surrender to Christ. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's not the gospel, it's the response to the gospel. It's not the gospel itself, it's the problem, it's the response to it. So they come, they follow him to a new city. It says, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by, uh, to the sea. By Sil- but Silas and Timothy remained there. So they're going to stay in Berea. And then it says, those who conducted Paul or brought him out, uh, brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Okay? He's traveled through two cities. There, well, there's two at the beginning. There was no synagogue there. So we, they kind of are breezing through there. But when they wind up in Thessalonica and then they travel to Berea, you can see that the declaration of the word is the the sufficient and authoritative means to to do whatever it is that God wants to do. And simply making the connection between what God's word says and who Jesus is, is the essence of the gospel, right? And so why is it that there's this response then? If the, the, the true problem is not the gospel itself, it's the response to this truth. Psalm 2 sums it up for us in this way. Why, why, why are they so angry? So it's not just the Jews that were mad right? They incite this rabble. It's the leaders of the city. It's the commoners, whoever they can get. And they're all stirred up against this. And Psalm 2 asks the same thing. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? What's their problem? He said, proverbially, they say this, let us cast off their bonds because we want to do what we want. We want to be at the top of the heap. We want to be Lord. We want to be king or at least somebody else that we can have sway with, right? Or have our slice of the pie. So that's why they rage against that. And so what you need to see about that is that regardless of what camp you fall in, even if you're a nice religious person or you're somebody out of work in the marketplace or whatever, you can be excited against that. There's no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. It's either for or against. You either agree, submit, or you're an active rebellion against God. It doesn't seem like that big a deal to put 85 gas even though your car calls for premium, right? But even that, is rebellion against what is true. You may think it works, but it's not the truth. God's word says specific things. You may not like them. You may not agree with them. They may be hard to accept, but it's not the truth if you don't accept all of them. So, trusting God's word in authority and sufficiency means three things. We'll get through them quick this morning. The proclamation... The only thing that we do that matters is God's word in our midst. 
however that is, proclaimed from here, from the pulpit, sung in, in word and deed as we interact with one another, that should be the means that we have for interacting with one another. That it's taught, it's preached, it's held to, it's kept in, it's exhorted from. 2 Timothy 4, as Paul's telling Timothy what he needs to do, he says, preach the word in season, out of season, rebuke, correct, whatever you need to do, all the time, preach the word. So we trust the proclamation of the word to be the sufficient means for God to do whatever it is that he will do. We also trust that it's the power in God's word, not in the person that's proclaiming it or the environment or the third time we're going through the bridge in a song. It's, it's, the, it's, it's God's word itself that's empowered by the Holy Spirit who breathed it out. And finally, the product, right? Whatever it is that God's word does is what God's word does. We don't have to worry about manipulating it or trying harder or, or not doing so much or whatever it is that we get pragmatic about for trying to make God's word better. Change it, manipulate, dismiss things, minimize some other things. Trust what God's word will do with the proclamation, its own empowerment, and then the product that it produces. Amen? Let's pray.